Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigielski. And today, you know, at, at my company, Pave, I work with a couple people from a company called Segment. And every single time this man's name is mentioned, everyone says he is a sales legend. And today, we figured out why. It's the one and only Steven Gergi, one of the first sales reps ever at Segment, and now one of the first sales reps over at Monte Carlo. Nick, why should people listen? You can throw all of the tips and tactics and strategies at a customer possible, but if you don't have the guts to challenge them and challenge them throughout every element of the sales process, you're never going to be the best of the best of the best. And Steven is one of those guys who legitimately challenges the customer from the first call to the last call. And if you want to learn how to actually bring it and challenge your customer, Steven's a guy to listen to. Three, two, one, I challenge you to listen to this episode. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. 
This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. All right, Steven, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me. So the first is do deeper discovery. So really drive into the granularity of the business impact that your software or your product, whatever it is, might be solving. And then really just understanding their timeframe, their pain, their goals. I think that's pretty paramount because... It'll actually allow you to focus, which is my, my second takeaway for the day. Well, let's hear it. What's number two? Yeah, number two is focus. So I've been in software sales for about 10 years. And the pattern that I've seen with the highest performing reps, the folks that do two to 500% of their number, compared to the folks that do 80 to 180% of their number, is really that they focus on the right deals that are the highest likelihood to close with the largest ASP. I think it's super important and, and we'll talk a little bit about like timing and how, how important timing is from like a focus and a prioritization perspective. Beautiful. Round us out. What's number three, Stephen? Being more of a partner and an equal rather than a concierge. So as salespeople, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, if I close this deal, I get this dollar commission or I really need to do everything I can to make this as easy as possible. But I really like to introduce good tension and negative pressure if I start to see the deal going sideways or if it starts going into the direction of my competitor. So we'll talk a little bit about kind of not necessarily being as helpful as possible, like a hotel concierge, but being perceived as a partner. So that way, like the leverage ratio is much more equal than a very unequal like seesaw. Steven, I know you've been at multiple companies in the early stages where you're winning on vision, but the reality is you're an earlier stage product. And so there are probably some check the box features that you don't have that are sort of ticky tacky thorns in the side. So how do you go about getting customers to be aligned with the vision, but okay with the fact that they're going to have to compromise on some of the perceived table stakes features that some of the old guard competitors have? So oftentimes I'll try through discovery to understand the the value or the prioritization of that specific feature set. So if they need, let's just say I'm selling a BI tool, if they need like non-technical users to be able to use it without having to write SQL and they're using Tableau, then that's something I'd be like, hey, how important is that to you folks? Or it seems like you're the data team, so you all know how to write SQL. So maybe that's not a huge priority. So I'll try to understand the prioritization of like certain features and functionality I'll also use it as an opportunity to plant landmines around my competitors. So that way, when they go through the scoping exercise of like success criteria, what we need to see out of a a vendor or solution, I will insert things that we do very well that our competitors might not do well. And then I'll try to see or drive home the importance or the value of that specific feature that allows us to be in a better position. So for example, at my current company today, a lot of our competitors aren't SOC 2 type 2 compliant. So I'll ask a prospect or a customer, hey, so I noticed that SOC 2 Type 2 compliance isn't on here or single sign-on. I would assume because you're a fintech company, or I would assume because you're a bank, or I would assume because you're a, a, a retailer like Nordstrom, that that's really important to you folks. So is that part of the success criteria? And now I've like reframed the conversation 
around my software as well as what we do probably better than the competition. One area that I sort of struggle where it's like, Armand, you asked that question about you don't have the table stakes, what might appear to be the table stakes features, and you're trying to sell on vision is when you get stuck talking to somebody who's far below the line. Because if I'm talking to somebody who's above the line and they get the vision, like, like, all right, whatever, we'll deal without having that other stuff. But if I'm talking to like an analyst level person, they just need to make sure we're getting something with all of the boxes on their Excel sheet done. And so one of the things you talk about is not chasing deals that like aren't actually deals. What do I do in a scenario where I've got a company where I'm like, wow, this could be a great fit. And I know we would be a really good fit for this company based on what I know, but I'm stuck talking to someone who won't ever get the vision and is only focused on like this check the box thing. How do I handle that? Yeah. I think we've all been in, in kind of like RFIs or RFPs where they're like, I don't want to talk to you, fill out this doc, let us know if you're a vendor that can satisfy our needs or not. And it's usually run by lower level engineering or, or analytical org. Oftentimes in preparation for this call, I'll try to have a, a fairly good guess of who the economic buyer is. And so that could be, in my case, a director of engineering, VP of engineering, a CTO, And if it's like a smaller org, it's probably the CTO. So oftentimes during that initial call, I might be like, hey, so I noticed your CTO Mary joined about six months ago. Is this on her radar? Is this a priority for her this quarter? Is it a next quarter priority? And try to understand if there is an economic buyer that's even involved or aware of this project. Because if they are, then it's a higher priority. If it's not, then it's a lower level priority. And if you can't get past this like low level gatekeeper, sometimes you just have to pursue the RFI or RFP because that's your only option. Candidly, we don't run trials at any of the companies that I've worked at. We run proof of concepts. In order to run a proof of concept, it requires resourcing both from a technology as well as a personnel perspective. So we dedicate sales engineering folks. We get you chatting with our product team. We get you chatting with our customer success organization. So that way you have a pulse on what it would be like as a future customer of ours. And so it's a, it's a fairly heavy lift on our end from a resourcing perspective. Our CEO does request to meet with prospects because one, it obviously helps the internal selling a little bit easier. And two, it gives your CTO or CEO, whoever's bridging with ours, a lot of influence around whether it's pricing or product roadmap. So it ends up being a win-win. We know that you're much more serious and then you have access to executives And if you're serious about the software or the solution, then again, nine times out of 10, the prospect's like, okay, that makes sense. I would love to have influence or or leverage on pricing or product roadmap features. So Steven, this happens a lot in early stage selling where people are just so hungry for free trials because it's newer, there aren't a million case studies, they don't have a thousand other friends that are using the same software. And to your point, it's a massive suck on resources, but also you can have these runaway POCs or these runaway trials that go on forever. And so I'm curious, how do you talk people off the ledge when they are so insistent on getting some sort of free trial done? So I think of trials as fundamentally different from a POC. A trial is like, hey, sign up with your credit card. It's like Dropbox. Like add some files, use it. It's very self-service. And that's really common with like product-led growth companies. That's a little bit different. A proof of concept, what I'll do is I will actually ask customers when we're going through success criteria, hey, so if we check all these boxes, are you going to buy this? And it creates this like tension and it creates a little bit of like pressure on them. And, you know, four out of five times they'll say, yeah, if you guys check all these boxes, then I'll totally buy it. 
It's like, okay. And so is it your budget or is it your CTO Mary's budget? And I'll do deeper discovery around that. But if they react in a negative way of like, no, I'm not going to buy it. I need to make sure that like, this is, you know, the right solution. We're looking at four different other solutions and, and no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I can't commit to that. Ultimately, I'll, I'll try to approach it through like a lot of like empathy and try to be like, hey man, so here's the challenge that we're facing. These POCs do require resourcing for us. It's not like a self-service credit card. And, and here's the reasons why. That's why we do ask for this executive level access. And that's why we ask for you to kind of like commit because we want to make sure that it's a priority for you. And if it is, we will throw everything we possibly can to make you guys successful. And again, if they're not serious, they'll be like, hey, maybe the time, that's a lot of lift right now. We're not ready to commit to that. And a lot of the times, like, they don't end up purchasing software. And I'm, I'm happy to let my competitors spend their time chasing those POCs that end up never closing or their scope creep. Or if it's not a huge priority or pain, then it just gets whittled down on price because they're like, ah, do we really need it? Is it really worth six figures? Why don't we just see if we can get it for 2K a month? If not, we'll just pick it up when it's on fire. Because they have like a million other initiatives and priorities that they have to worry about. And if you're not a top priority, then you're just wasting your time. So Stephen, I love this concept of being okay with losing the wrong deals. Now, there are times where there's a deal that's just within your fingertips and an early stage selling. Maybe you want to bring in your CTO or your CEO, or oftentimes you're working with product really closely as well. And so when you're close and you know you've got most of the things you need, but you need to bridge the gap on a couple of feature gaps, maybe not even today, but you at least need a little bit of help selling the vision. I'm curious, how are you leveraging other teams internally in your sales process when you're in one of those competitive head-to-heads? In every single deal. Usually people want to talk to product and engineering. So either my CTO, my head of engineering, or, or like head of product or a PM is involved in the deal. So part of our process is we have that product roadmap, but if it's like a highly technical organization or company, like Stripe is a good example, they want to talk to your CTO and they're probably going to get access to the CTO. But if it's like a large enterprise and it's like a product driven org, like JP Morgan Chase, they probably want to talk to a product lead around like what's coming around the pike. So I involve my executives, especially on the EPD side in every single deal. So that's part of it. The other thing that I'll do is I'll get prospects to talk to customers that have run similar evaluations, oftentimes have the same stack. And, and then I prescribe it. I say, hey, listen, what we found over the, you know, God, we've done hundreds of these at this point. It's really helpful to talk to a customer that's actually gone through the process, gotten our software deployed, and has been successful. Especially if you're selling against startups, then that's like a huge advantage that you might have because maybe your competitors don't have as many customers that have been using it for 6, 12, 18 months. So not only do I get a technical leader within our organization to talk to the prospect, I'll also get a, a customer. But again, for those gives, I have to have gets in return. Are you going to buy the software if we check all these boxes? What happens if we don't check a few of these boxes in the POC? What if we're unable? You said that SOC 2 Type 2 compliance is really important to you. We don't have that yet. Are you going to get to the conclusion where if you check all these other boxes, are you going to buy it? Are you not going to buy it? Because we can't just get that done in two weeks like a POC. So that's typically what I'll, I'll do. 
So let's assume that you've gotten some gets, so to speak, and you have their commitment that if you de-risk these three or four things, then yes, I will in fact move forward and buy. Now, when you bring in your CTO or when you bring in your PM, what have you, my guess is you're prepping them because they're not gonna just come in and give the same boilerplate, here's the roadmap, right? You're probably having them come in to de-risk certain things. So I'm curious, what goes into prepping a PM to make sure that that call goes effectively? Yeah, so if you're not building a prep doc, then you're doing it wrong. So every single call that I have either a PM or, or a executive on, I have a fully built out prep doc. Easiest way to think of it is like who, what, when, where, why, how. So who are we talking to? What do they care about? How are we doing it? And then oftentimes I'll include gaps and I'll be like, hey, here are the gaps that we have in comparison to our competitor or the incumbent solution. Here are the things to completely avoid. And here are the things to just like nail and like dive super deep on because they'll get super fired up about it. So in those prep docs, it'll have like high level, but then don't touch this, double down on this as well. Awesome. Is this more of a, when you go into this meeting with product, are the product team members typically doing some sort of discovery or is it more of a presentation type of format? It depends on the type of call. So sometimes it's a roadmap session and then they'll say, hey, our understanding, we like to start with our understanding of how you're thinking about using our technology and what you're excited about kind of coming around the pike in the next few quarters. Is that your understanding as well? Do you agree with that? What's missing? And that's more of a presentation. If it's like a specific feature or aspect of our technology, like today I work for a company that has a machine learning component in its software. And so sometimes they're like, hey, I just want to understand how your models are built and like really dive into the weeds on like the machine learning models and the pattern recognition and the type of simulations that we run against their data. And so that's usually like a product or a technical leader that doesn't have slides unless they're selling the future and, and what's coming in the future. It's really just more of a, a phone or in this case, a Zoom conversation. Gotcha. And I know you joined both Segment and Monte Carlo, two phenomenal orgs very early on. And I joined Pay very early as well. And one of the challenges that I had is I explicitly remember losing three deals in the month and the prospects each said the exact same thing. They're all like, the vision is awesome. I just can't tell how much of it is there yet, right? And I felt like I had oversold the vision or oversold all the things that we want to do eventually. And it almost made it seem like these are all the things that we want to do eventually. And it made the vision seem so big, but where we are today seems so small. And so I'm curious, how do you strike the balance between selling the dream and all the things that are going to come in the future versus being like, hey, these are the problems that we're, we're actually going to solve for you guys today? Yeah. So you're going to have a pulse throughout the entire sales process. How much of it is like what you do today and how much of it you're like selling ahead of the product. I would say a good rough number mentally is like, we should be able to do 80% of this stuff today. And the other 20%, they're like, okay, we're willing to like take a bet. We're betting on you as a company. And we think you have like great product and engineering resources. So like, we think we, you can deliver. But if you find that like one out of two things that they want, or it's a required capability, or it's a preference, is something that you don't do, but it's coming down the pike either next month or next quarter, then yeah, you're in a pretty disadvantageous position and you might not be able to win that deal. 
So I like to to hit that head on and, and run towards that one. And so like, hey, I know that like we can only do about 50% of the stuff that you want to do. Does it still make sense to do a POC? Like, it, does it still make sense to ask for your time? I want to be super respectful of your time. Like, it seems like we're just not there yet. And allow them to either A, stop the eval now and save your time and theirs because you're not going to win it. Or B, they'll actually start selling you on why you are uniquely positioned. Oh, hey, listen, like, it's not a big deal. We're looking for like who has the product today and also a vision that aligns with our vision. And so your competitor's vision might not align with theirs. So I, I like to introduce that tension and, and ask them to kind of explain if it still makes sense. So the scenario you just described is one where you're, you're saying, hey, we might not be a fit because of where we are right now. Yeah. How about the inverse of that, where you're talking with a customer and one of the things you put in the prep doc is like the importance of, is this an initiative like right now, this quarter versus two, three, four, maybe even next quarter out? Like, what do you do when you've got a prospect who it seems like maybe they're sort of tire kicking or like this is a problem for like a lower level person, but it might not be an org level thing. How do you artfully like eject someone or, or, or push back on, hey, maybe we shouldn't be showing you a demo right now? Yeah. So I'll just kind of run towards that one. I call it blowing it up. I'll just blow up the deal. I'll just be like, hey, so I'm a little bit confused. It sounds like this is probably more of a Q3 initiative. So can you help me like walk backwards and, and understand the timeline here? Like, what are you folks thinking about? Like, do you want to make an evaluation decision on like which vendors to do a proof of concept? If it's like a company like PetSmart, where they're just like big and slow, then they might need nine months to run this process. But oftentimes, if it's like, yeah, I'm just kicking tires, trying to figure it out, probably going to make a decision by the end of the year where we're in a code freeze because we're in retail, I'd be like, hey, totally makes sense. Honestly, like as a company, we didn't even exist two years ago. So why don't I do this? Why don't I reconnect with you in about four or five months? And that way, we're going to have like a ton of different stuff within the platform, and it'll be a little bit more of an applicable demo. And allow them to either A, say, no, I need to understand what the vendor does now so I can start this process, in which then maybe that's a good litmus test. Or B, they're like, okay, that makes sense. What are things you're looking for? So you sort of gave that one example where they're like, oh, yeah, end of the year, we're in a code freeze. But one of the things that keeps me from doing what you just described is the fear that I'm going to reject them and they're going to get off the call and and then they end up buying from my competitor or they go way deeper with my competitor. And so when I finally do connect five months later, it's like, we're so far behind, we have no chance of catching up. So like, what are some of the cues or triggers or things you're listening and looking for to help inform your action in that scenario? So I'll preface by this is really hard. So I try to kind of understand like, hey, around timeline and priority, I try to ask it in a way that doesn't make them feel like I'm rejecting them. So oftentimes I'll say like, hey, typically what we've seen is that like proof of concepts take about two to three weeks and then the customer ends up making a decision. Can you help me understand your time frame and like what you have in mind? And like, oh, wow, that's a little bit different from what we see. Like, can you help me understand why that is? Oh, it's a six month process. The thing around like the fear of like, oh my God, what if I blow this one up and my competitor gets it? Oftentimes, I find that that fear is the thing that's driving salespeople to pursue the wrong deals because they're like, I'm worried about my quota. I'm worried about my pipeline. I'm worried about losing this deal. I'm worried about losing it to this specific competitor, three competitors in a row. And so that fear always drives the wrong behavior. And so you should always be operating from a place of of confidence or at least try to. 
Well, so much of what you're doing, it seems, relates to timeline. I've heard you talk about timeline more than almost any other salesperson that we've interviewed on this show. And I'm wondering, when I think about the discovery process with a customer, like I'm hoping to understand like the pain that they want to solve and the results they're looking to achieve. And then eventually I want to learn about like, what's the buying process look like? And then I also want to learn about the timeline. And I think about like, you've got buying process and you've got like the business pain or need, and they're almost like two separate discovery tracks. I mean, they intertwine in ways. I usually prioritize understanding like, what's the issue today? What can we solve before I start talking about like deal mechanics, like timeline, but it sounds like you might be talking about timeline first or process first. And I'm wondering if you can just elaborate on that. Yeah. So my bias is coming from a place where I work in software sales, where there is a fair amount of inbound interest, where a hundred percent of the business isn't, isn't run by outbound. And so much like life in general, your most precious asset as a salesperson is time. And so I try to understand that timing as much as humanly possible early on in the process, because I forget the statistic, but something like 80% of the sales process is done by the time the prospect calls you or talks to you, right? They've looked at your vendors, they've looked at G2 Crowd, they've looked at Gartner and, and Forrester and all that stuff. So they already have a pretty good pulse. They're pretty far along in the process. And if the timing isn't like a this quarter initiative, then it's just probably not high enough of a priority unless it's a large, large enterprise company like a JP Morgan or a Procter & Gamble where they're used to 12 to 24-month sales cycles. But yeah, I, I think startups kind of live and die by timing and chasing the right deals that matter that have a higher likelihood of closing quickly versus chasing the wrong deals that don't matter or are unlikely to close quickly. So that's why with pain, I think timing is probably the most important that I'll dig into around like a first call. It's like, help me understand the pain. What are you trying to solve from a goals perspective? And then ultimately, why now? Versus why six months from now? Or why next June? One of the things that can be challenging is, let's say that they've identified that this is a priority at the end of this quarter, three months down the road, what have you. Great, you can start to walk back the implementation timeline. But still, sometimes if there's not a commercial lever and you don't want to give up a discount, the difference for them between getting it done at the end of this month versus at the beginning of next month might just be one week, and it's not that big of a deal for them. So in a world in which you are not giving any discounts or commercial concessions, how do you hold people to very specific timelines to make sure that your month or your quarter doesn't get blown up? Yeah. So I'll try to figure this out as early as possible in the process to understand, is there a real, natural, internal compelling event? If I'm selling analytics and their contract expires with the incumbent on June 30, then they need something in place by like maybe June 1st to do the migration. So that makes sense. It's amazing when customers have internal compelling events. I'd say now four out of five times, customers don't have internal compelling events. And so to your point, the difference between them signing on June 30th or July 1st might not matter to them, but it could be the world of difference to a salesperson or a sales organization. So I'll try to understand that potential landmine early on, and then I'll kind of build my behavior around it. So, okay, if we're optimizing for a June 30 close date, then what do we need to do with procurement and legal to, to work towards that? And you can start introducing carrots in the sales process. Like, hey, I know that you're doing us a favor around like this June 30th signature date, and it's important to you folks, but to sweeten the deal, what we'll do is maybe a free month of service, or we'll bake in like a discount that's contingent on that. And so you can start with 
really carrots rather than sticks around like, hey, your price is going up if you don't get it done by June 30. That just never goes well and it creates a really bad experience. So I'll try to understand if this is going to be an issue. And then ultimately, if you have a strong champion, then you can ask them, hey, it would be really important if you got this done for us. And I've been in countless negotiations where we do like three rounds of like, we start with this and then we get whittled down to this and then they want this. And so we get like version three or version four. Throughout all of those versions, I make sure that like the slides or the deck or whatever we're showing them is contingent on like a sign date. And then I constantly remind them, hey, again, so just to make sure we're aligned, we're working towards this June 30th close. And then I ask them like, hey, do you see a world in which this doesn't get done by June 30th? Like, do you know if your general counsel, like, who is the signer? And then I go into like the paper process of like, who's the signer? What's a procurement process? Is there a PO that needs to be issued? Is a PO issued need to get issued before the signature, after the signature? Some companies have to issue a PO before. Who's on vacation that week? Who's taking their kids to Disneyland for spring break? All of that stuff is really important. But at that point in the sales process, hopefully you have a strong enough champion that's going to be selling in your behalf internally and, and trying to give you that personal win. All right, Stephen, this has been great. We're running out of time, so we got to move to the final question, which is, we've talked about a lot of great things salespeople should be doing. Now we need to flip it on its head and talk about a shouldn't. And so the final question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? I hate to sound like your first VP of sales or sales manager, but honestly, I think the number one thing that salespeople get too comfortable and don't do, and it just works against them in every single deal and interaction is prep. If you're not prepping for every single one of your calls, you're going to like miss out on an opportunity. So earlier in the process, we talked about like Mary being the CTO. You don't know who the CTO is if you don't do the prep. You don't know if Mary's six months in or six years into the role. You don't know if she's like just new to the organization. You don't know if she's going to be the economic buyer someone else is going to be. You haven't talked to any of potentially your technology partners. Like if I'm in the data ecosystem, I might call folks at Fivetran or Snowflake or, or High Touch and say like, hey, have you sold to this company before? What was that process like? If you're not doing that prep, even just reading about their stock price plummeting two weeks prior, that's super important. And when salespeople get comfortable in their own rhythm and they're like confident and they're crushing it and they're doing well, it's probably the easiest thing that they forget to do. And it's, it's super important. Beautiful. Steven, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. 
Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how ZoomInfo helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by ZoomInfo's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Stephen Gergi include Number one, if it's not a fit, that's okay. Put it out there. If you only meet 50% of the requirements, put that out there and then let the prospect justify themselves back into the deal. Number two, when you're going through any sort of RFP or if you're trying to understand all of their requirements, as you look through the requirements, what you need to do is you also need to say like, hey, why isn't this in here? Why isn't SOC 2 in here? And what you want to do is insert the areas that you do really well and your competitors don't do well. Which brings us to number three, is once you get that RFP, don't just fill that thing out for free. What you should require is an executive level bridge where you bring in your CEO or your CTO in to meet with their VP of engineering or their CTO, all right? And then lastly, number four, when you're going to drive timeline, your number one priority is an internal compelling event. If you cannot get an internal compelling event, your next best option is to walk back all of the things that you need to do around that June 30th deadline and then provide them carrots. That might be a free month, that might be a discount, whatever it might be, but you should not be using the negative stick that says, hey, at the end of this month, your price is going to go up. It never goes well. All right, Nick. How can people help us out? If you feel like you might benefit from episode summaries, recaps, and understanding all the fun stuff we're doing in the 30 Minutes to President's Club ecosystem, we do occasionally send out emails to a lovely email list. You might even call it a newsletter, and you can sign up for our 30 Minutes to President's Club newsletter in the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.